you are from the north side of yes. Chicago, but a fan of the team from the south side. How did all of that come together? When uh, I was eight years old, uh, my, my dad John had belonged to the Winnetka Lions Club, Winnetka being the town that I grew up in, and uh, he didn't like sports particularly, particularly didn't like baseball, but uh, the, the Lions Club had an outing uh, to see the White Sox play the Yankees at Comiskey Park, and while he didn't like baseball, he did like drinking beer so, uh, <laughs> with his buddies, so uh, uh, he got two tickets and took me down to see the White Sox play the Yankees. Now, it was a full house against, obviously, the Yankees. You know, Mantle played, Maris played in 1963, and uh, the White Sox uh have an outfielder by the name of Floyd Robinson, and our seats were in the second row of the lower deck out in right field. And like an eight-year-old, uh, I just was sitting there. Come on, Floyd, hit one right to me. And uh, he uh, proceeded to Homer. This was in the seventh inning. Homer into the upper deck just uh, above me to give the White Sox a two-to-one lead and eventually a two-to-one win. And it was a situation where. The White Sox, uh, Old Comiskey Park at the time, was the only park in baseball that shot off fireworks after a home run. So being an impressionable eight-year-old, uh, I, I immediately became a White Sox fan because they won in such an exciting fashion. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, growing up, I also knew that once you liked one of the two teams, you had to despise the other. And so that's <laughs> how that all came about. The funny thing is, in that game, the starting pitchers were Ralph Terry for the Yankees and Juan Pizarro for the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Again, the White Sox went it 2-1. to one. The following year, he took me again to the Lions Club outing. Again, it was against the Yankees, and sure enough, it was Pizarro against Terry again, and the White Sox won again 2-1. to one. <laughs> And so that same <laughs> summer, 64, a friend of mine's birthday party, he took us, his dad took about eight of us to see the Cubs play the Milwaukee Braves, and me being me, our little uh, dime store in the downtown Winnetka uh, sold the uh, baseball caps, and one of the caps they sold was a Milwaukee Braves hat. So I bought a Milwaukee Braves hat to wear to this friend's birthday party at Wrigley. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, th- that's the way the law and the rules work around there. I that's mean, right. That's, yeah, that's what you do. You are one or the other. That's. That's absolutely That's right. how that goes. No fence sitters. No, no, none whatsoever. Well, I, see, I wonder about this, Steve, because, uh, you know, people go, oh, yeah, you and Steve are pretty good friends. I said, oh, I love Steve. They said, oh, well, you you guys probably have a lot in common. You know, I said, uh, maybe one or two things. So I'm ketchup, you're mustard. I'm Cubs, you're White Sox. Uh, uh, I love wings. You're, you're not a big wing guy. Uh, no. I prefer Giordano's. You like Geno's. Um, I'm annoying. You're interesting. So like, how on earth did you ever become friends with me? I mean, is it just that we just both happen to be bears fans and that's enough to carry it over? Well, that that might've, might've started it, but uh, (laughs) what you've done and all that have uh, impressed me, your work ethic. And so uh, I enjoy being around people who uh, take things as, I mean, I've always told people, take your job seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. And I think uh, you fall into into that category. You know, if you mentioned Cubs White Sox. I remember uh, uh, one of my first uh, uh, dates with, uh, uh, with with Sue was uh, to a White Sox game, and I had found out that she was more of a uh, she really wasn't a huge baseball person, but was more Cubs and White Sox. And I told her, 
if this is going to work out, you're going to have to become a White Sox fan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so she did. So I, I want you to tell everybody the story about how you met Sue. Because every couple has a story. I don't know if I've heard a story as cool and as interesting as yours with meeting your wife. First of all, how long have you guys been married? And then, and then tell the story about how you guys met. August 7th will be our 44th anniversary. Wow. And we always remember our 20th because our 20th, it was like the one time in our lives that I said, okay, we'll go out to dinner after the game. And so the Buzz in Vancouver proceeded to play 16 innings. And I think I got home a little after 1.30 in the morning. And <laughs> we just kind of looked at each other and laughed and wound up going to have a, a 2 o'clock candlelight breakfast at Denny's. There you go. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, at the time, back in 1975, I was in between radio. So I was working. I was actually the manager of the drive through facility at Deerbrook State Bank in Deerfield. Illinois, and uh, she happened to be a customer, and so, you know, she would come through the drive-through and make a deposit and all that, and and uh, eventually I just said, well, I think I'm going to see if I can ask her out. So one time with her deposit, uh, I put a little note in the middle of her cash back asking her out, and she was in a hurry because she wanted to get home and watch all my children, so she just scribbled out okay and left. <laughs> but because I was the manager at the bank. I had everybody's signature card, so I, I had her phone, her home phone number. So I eventually called, and we we set up that uh, first date, which was uh, August thirtieth of nineteen seventy. <laughs> so did you like? What was that first phone call like? Did she know it was you? Did she? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I, I think I called and I, I heard something about uh, uh, there's a Sue. There's a there's a boy on the phone for you. And so I, I said, yeah, this is uh, Steve from the bank. Uh, I just slipped you the note. To, uh, can you uh, uh, go out on, on Friday night? So we wound up uh, going to dinner, playing miniature golf, going to ice cream, and watching a movie. That's awesome. I, I have uh, had the chance to know Sue for years now. And what a lot of people would never know is that I've probably sat down and had as many, if not more, conversations with her than I have with you. Because she would be, like, there is nobody more supportive. I mean, really, she's there in the media room waiting for you after games. She sat next to you many times in the booth reading a book, uh, you know, waiting after games. She's worked in the ticket offices and all of that. Um, she is very attached, not just to you, but your passion and your dreams and all of that. I think it's remarkable, and it's it's a part of... I think your story and, and the history of your career and all that, that I don't think people would really recognize or know. But what I think is great is how much you appreciate that and how much she deeply feels your success as her success. So how do you kind of describe what her support has been like for, for all these years? Well, it's been, uh, it's been unbelievable because obviously there were some slim times that, you know, uh, leaving uh, South Carolina in 1979. And uh, well, first of all, just, uh, you know, I was working at a, at the bank, and she had a nice job at an insurance company. And, uh, and I get a call in the October of '77 uh, from uh, the new management at the radio station in South Carolina that I had started at, and wanting to know if I was interested in getting back in, which I obviously was. And and uh, for her to give up everything and move away from family for the first time and and, and go there and where we knew nobody, 
uh, was amazing. And then, you know, we leave there in 79. It took a few months before I was able to land something supportive there. And then uh, that long period of time when the station at Aurora, Illinois, folded, and uh, I was without a job for 19 months. It was at the, you know, there were some points where her, her grandmother was saying she should dump me. And uh, she, oh. you know, was, was right there uh, in, in support all along. So any, any kind of uh, minimal success that I've had in my career is all due to her. How awkward were those Thanksgiving dinners? Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, even before that, they were awkward. Let's put it that way. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, through that journey, of her being with you and even before you had met her, um, was there a time you thought your dream might not come true where you started to really doubt the possibility of becoming kind of what you are and, and what you've had in your career? Uh, yes, there was. I mean, when uh, going right before I, I, I came here and got the job, I was it was really uh, touch and go uh, whether or not I, I, I wanted to continue because it just didn't look like anything was going to, to break my way. I, I had a, a couple of close calls and, and nothing really happened. And uh, Not that this is really great for job security, but at one point that summer before I, I got the job here, I had actually applied to be a, a telephone reservationist for Amtrak. All right. Yeah, that's that, that, that secure job. Let me yeah. tell you, I, I know how to pick them. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I had an Amtrak ride from Salt Lake to San Francisco once that was supposed to be, I think, 11 or 12 hours, and it, it turned into, I think, 26 is what it was. It was uh, and the thing is, it's, yeah. it's not much, uh, it's not that much less expensive than flying. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a situation where I thought, you know, this would be cool. I was actually going to go visit my sister, and I had my brother with me, and I thought this would be a cool different way. You know, to kind of do this, why not? Let's let's check this out. Nope, never again. That was that was a really <laughs> rough trip. Actually, when uh, I got the job here, we only had one car at the time, and I had to drive it out here. And Sue and the kids, uh, who were nine and four at the time, weren't going to drive out uh, or come out until I found a place for us to live here. And so, like the first three weeks I was here, I was uh, neighbors with uh, Rick Majerus at the University Park Hotel. Oh but, man. Um, uh, when uh, I when I did uh, finally find a place and they came out, obviously I had the car, so uh, they actually came out on Amtrak from uh, Chicago all the way to Salt Lake City, and I can remember uh, them telling me that uh, they it, they hit dawn about the time the train crossed the Colorado River, and they were looking out, and and the fishermen and the fisherwomen uh, along the riverbanks all mooned the train. Oh, okay. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, the train didn't get into town here until like 1230 in the morning. So I can remember picking them up, waking up the next morning at the hotel and the kids looking outside. And they'd never been that close to, to mountains before. And, mm -hmm. you know, they only had one real point of reference. And uh, my son, Adam, who was nine at the time, looked at the mountains and goes, how many Sears Towers does it take to equal the height of the mountain? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you were not a broadcaster, what job would you have? Like, what was your other passion as a kid or as you were kind of developing different skills growing up? Probably travel. I, I, I was always fascinated by travel, even though as a family growing up, we didn't travel very much because the family owned a, a, a 
uh, the whole Clouty family owned a, a cottage in a small off a small lake in uh, uh, Ontario, about a hundred miles northeast of Toronto. So that was our vacation every year. But I had always uh, wanted to fly, always wanted to, to travel, and uh, was interested in, in travel agencies. Matter of fact, the, the the family business was an insurance agency, but when it opened back in the 30s, I think it was, by my grandfather, it was a travel agency. Wow. But then when World War II came around, uh, no, nobody could travel, so that's when it became an insurance agency. So uh, I probably would have liked to have somehow been involved in, in travel in, in one way, shape, or form. Who were the favorite broadcasters for you to listen to in some of your younger years, and who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to today? Well, uh, Hall of Famer Jack Brickhouse may be one main reason why I got into this business or uh, was curious about it, because you know, when, when you were uh, in elementary school uh, in, in Chicago uh, in April, May, early June, and September, when you uh, came home from school and you wanted to watch uh, uh, either the, the cartoons or the Three Stooges or a local show called Garfield Goose, where a, a puppet goose was the president of the or king of the United States, excuse me, uh, you had to wait for the Cubs game to finish because all Cub games were day games, of course, and all games were televised on WGN. So uh, I kind of was... Uh, interested in uh, the games and then as time went on I was interested in what uh, Mr. Brickhouse was doing and and from a, a career standpoint he was always a guy that I admired from the standpoint that he was uh, uh, multi-talented he did the, the Cubs and White Sox games on WGN television he was the radio voice of the Chicago Bears and he was the first TV play-by-play announcer for the Bulls and even dabbled a little bit as an in-between period host for the Blackhawks and was you know, uh, famous for doing uh, uh, political interviews back in the 40s and 50s in the early days of WGN. So he mm. was a guy that uh, was great to listen to. The hockey announcer Lloyd Pettit was uh, the best. Jim Durham, longtime Bulls broadcaster. Those were guys back then uh, as, as an impressionable junior high and high school student uh, really paid attention to and, and liked what they did. And I, I had a chance to meet uh, two of those three over the years. And the one thing that, that Jack Brickhouse told me that always stuck with me is no matter how bad a day that you're having, don't ever take it on the air with you because the people listening are trying to escape their own problems for two to three hours. So that one really kind of kind of stuck with me. As far as uh, to, today's uh, folks, I, I think TV-wise, the Giants put on the best uh, baseball broadcast. Uh, Al Michaels and, and Joe Buck on television for football, uh, radio for football. I've always enjoyed, even though he became a traitor and moved from the Pairs to the Packers. Uh-huh. Wayne Larrabee's a great He's uh, awesome. uh, listen as far as uh, radio football is concerned. Um, gosh, basketball. You know, Mike Breen on television, uh, obviously, uh, you know, I, I couldn't be as uh, uh, the, the personality or gregarious, but I thought that, you know, uh, Hot Rod, you know, called a, a great game. So he was a guy that uh, I kind of followed as well. So there's just, uh, you know, so many guys, but, uh, you know, you can maybe take a tidbit or two from people, but uh, the bottom line is you have to be yourself. But, oh, sure. uh, those are the guys that uh, probably have uh, – 
they impressed me uh, the most. It's so crazy that you say that it was Jack Brickhouse growing up, because for me, even though it was in Salt Lake City, it was Harry Carey. It was the reason that I fell in love with it, because of WGN, and we were able to get it here in Salt Lake. Um, well, because... funny thing is that I was a fan of Harry, too, but going back to the 60s, because at night, you could uh, pick up KMOX in, in the St. Chicago Louis. area. And I would listen on my little transistor radio to uh, uh, the come. How about this for a combination? Harry Carey and Jack Buck on the Cardinals games. Yeah, that's talent right there. Different, <laughs> uh, different versions of that talent too, right? I mean, Jack was a, a very different type of broadcaster compared to Harry, but oh yeah, Harry no, was remarkable. No doubt. Yeah. There was no doubt. But it was, uh, it was they, they were you know great to uh, to listen to and and learn from and, and what have you and you know people might um, remember the caricature that Harry was towards the end of his career, but uh, in his heyday, he was uh, a blast to listen to. You know, with, with listen to KMOX. Then in the 70s, when he joined the White Sox as part of their broadcast crew, but I kind of felt bad for him because when the, he first took over the White Sox radio job, the White Sox had been so bad in 1970 that no major Chicago radio station would pick up the White Sox games. <laughs> and so he and a gentleman by the name of Ralph Boucher did the games on a network of small thousand watt suburban stations. And <laughs> finally, after in his third year, the White Sox were good enough uh, that uh, one of the Chicago stations uh, picked it up. So it was uh, it was uh, a rough go when he when he first came, but he was so much fun uh, to listen to. And then eventually he moved to television with the White Sox, and that's all the old take me out to the ball game with Harry came about because Bill Veck, the owner of the White Sox at the time, would notice that in the seventh inning stretch, Harry would just kind of be up in the booth and sing to himself and maybe try to get the people below him uh, to to start singing. And so he had one of the interns at Comiskey Park stick the public address uh, microphone in Harry's booth and uh, turned it on without Harry knowing. And he started singing, take me out to the ball game. And eventually the whole ballpark heard it and kind of joined in and it kind of took off from there. Yeah, man. And what a great history that was because growing up watching, I would hurry home and uh, like from school and stuff, I would hurry home to catch the, the final innings, but I had to hurry to try and also catch the seventh inning stretch. It was something I actually loved and uh, his ability to just have so much fun. It's so weird because the Cubs... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, the the only thing was in the 70s, it was much better when he said, root, root, root for the White Sox. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there there were a few things. I, I loved that he would do the seventh inning stretch. It always looked like everybody was having fun. And uh, when I would hurry to get home, there was a good friend of mine. He just he wasn't even really a baseball guy, but he loved to just hate whatever team I was rooting for. And he said, you don't need to hurry. There's always going to be a bottom of the ninth. You know, there's always going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and, and most times he was right, to be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> Those teams were so bad, uh, some of them. But you it's crazy because you attach to them, you have the memories of them. Um, it, it was actually uh, like kindergarten years that I was starting to learn the game of baseball and, and WGN and all of that, and I would just hope there was a day game because if there wasn't a day game, then it would be General Hospital or something like that, and I just, oh, please, whatever we can do to please have the day game. And I, and I was learning the game, which was also encouraging, but the big thing was 
Harry was having fun and those fans were having fun and that environment looked fun. And all I ever wanted to do was then be a part of something like that. And so it's cool that you've been able to live out your dream uh, the way that you have. And, and I've had the chance to uh, work at a ballpark and enjoy the, the beauty and, and the wonderful things that have come with that. I've, I've worked over a thousand games, barely, and you have broadcast over 3,000 games. Um, what are some of the strangest things that you've ever seen or some of your favorite memories? There's so many of them. I already mentioned the 16-inning game and the pool uh-huh. home homer. I could remember a, a start of the game in Colorado Springs was being delayed because the right fielder for Colorado Springs wouldn't take his position, couldn't figure out what was going on, got the binoculars out, and there was about a nine-foot-long yellow snake slithering across right field. So I probably <laughs> wouldn't have gone out there either. Eventually, the groundskeeper... Uh, was able to get a rake and scoop up the snake, put it in a bucket, and you know, behind, right behind the outfield fence was just an open field. It wasn't paved, or it wasn't. Uh, it was just high grass. So he just apparently took the bucket and dropped the snake back off on the other side of the wall. <laughs> there, there was a a jackrabbit delay in Calgary, and one time in Calgary at the start of the game, there was a situation where all of a sudden the sprinkler head broke in the left field corner. And it looked like Old Faithful out there, and it was starting to flood the corner. The umpires were concerned about whether or not they're going to have to call the game. And finally, there was a, a, a shed near the uh, exit, and a priest in uh, in his uh, gear uh, grabbed a bucket, turned it upside down, and sat on it on top of the sprinkler head, and uh, sat on it and covered it until they could find the the device to turn it off so that they could save the game so he, he the, the priest saved the game by sitting on a, an upside down bucket over a, uh, a geyser of a sprinkler head break there's many different ways many different yeah. ways to save it. i remember i remember wherever the buzz had an infielder named brian robbie uh, we were playing at edmonton and he was at his position at second base and all of a sudden he he went into gyrations like what in the world was going on well ironically he was Stung in the face by a bee. Oh man! Oh man! That is no man. That and you're probably as confused as anybody wondering what's oh, going on. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. he's out there looking like he's doing the Olympic backstroke or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> needless to say, that the players gave him a, a, a lot of grief over the years. You know, we've had strange travel situations. There have been uh, you know some really crazy games, like the one in Salt Lake in 98 when New Orleans scored nine runs in the top of the first inning. And then the buzz came back and scored eight runs in the bottom of the first. It took 51 minutes to play the first inning. The late Joe Garagiola was there that night to promote his anti-spit tobacco campaign. He pokes his head in the booth and goes, see, that's the strangest inning I've ever seen. And of course, me being me and remembering his book, I go, Joe, baseball's a funny game. (laughs) And eventually... The Buzz win the game on a three-run homer in the bottom of the ninth by Scott Stahoviak that not only won the game, but gave Scott the cycle. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know he got you know, the cycle. I knew the story of that game, the long first inning. You told me that, but I did not know that he hit for the cycle with the walk-off. Yep, That's awesome. Hit for the cycle. and Although, you know, Joe's a pretty famous guy. I would say he's not the most famous guy that has gone to the booth, and in 1998, when the Jazz were in the finals for the second time, that was the year that Marv Albert was on suspension, so Bob Costas was doing the play-by-play for NBC. And 
after game one of that series, it was a Sunday, and I got a call from Kim Turner, who was then the PR director for the Jazz, asking if I could leave Bob Costas uh, 10 tickets so that he and his group can come out to the ballpark. And I said, well, could Bob join me on the air for an inning? And uh, he was told, sure. And he said, of course. So third inning rolls around, fourth, fifth, no Bob Costas, no group of 10. Turns out they never showed up. But in the sixth inning, in the middle of the inning, the door to my booth opens. And I go, in my mind, who could that be opening the door in the middle of the inning? And so I happened to glance over my shoulder very quickly, and it was Brent Musburger. And so the inning ends, and I introduce myself, and I and he go, and I go, he goes, yeah, sure. I was uh, just uh, driving down from Park City, listening to the game, so I thought I'd stop by and say hi. <laughs> and so, so he I said, randomly well, stops by on a yeah, night where yeah, Bob Costas shows you said, up. Would you, <laughs> would, would you uh, join me for an inning? He says, sure. And then I said, I promise I won't tell the story. When he made the move from radio and newspaper to television in Chicago. Uh, the CBS affiliate in Chicago wanted to play up his Montana upbringing, so they made him do the 10 o'clock news, the, the sportscast on the 10 o'clock news, in a denim shirt and a bolo tie. <laughs> and he, he laughed and goes, I didn't know, I think anybody remembered that. Well, I was an impressionable high school student at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. That That's fantastic. You know, you weren't... Uh, from the vantage point I was, but it was, I still think the strangest thing that ever happened at the ballpark in all the years that I was ever there and, and at the same time that you were there was the fight that happened with, I think it was Albuquerque, who was the Dodger affiliate at the time. I think it was Albuquerque. It was on Kids Day. And I'm in the third base tunnel getting ready for one of the promotions. So I'm actually in the dugout and I remember it was Miguel Olivo, and I forget the other guy's name, but there's a moment, and, and Kids Day is weird because the noise level is so big, but it, it stays the same the whole time. Like it, it, right. it, so it's it's really tough to kind of read the game if you're because I I got an ability when I'm down there in the tunnels to be able to read kind of what's happening based on the crowd noise, doing what it's doing, if there's an out, if the home team's still up to bat, whatever. But during kids' day, it's all the same. So anyway, I'm down there in the tunnel, and I'm looking out, and there was a throw to second or something like that, and it was Olivo and the shortstop start jawing at each other. And I, somebody was talking to me at the time in the tunnel, and I said, wait, 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 wait. I could read the body language, and I go, they're going to fight. Like, on the field, they're going to fight. And then before you know it, other players had to start grabbing each of them and keeping them from each other. And the coaches there inside the dugout were yelling, knock that off. Hey, cut that out. Knock it off. They're yelling out to him. And I thought, wow, that I have never seen that happen. But then, as you know, it didn't end there. The uh, As I'm on the field doing the on-field promotion, you know, 20 feet behind me in the dugout, the fight is happening. And I didn't know because the noise level is at such a high-level pitch. Well, this fight's going on. And it involved one guy biting the other guy's ear off uh, during that yep. whole thing. That had to be the strangest thing. And what was weird is we got done with the promotion. We're in the tunnel congregating, talking about what's going on, like the hallway outside the dugout. And walking by us, we see a player with a towel up against his ear, not thinking anything of it. 
And before you know it, it was it was it, it, people don't know this. It was well after the game that it it was suddenly discovered that that kind of fight happened. Is there anything as bizarre as that? Even though you didn't have a chance to kind of see it as like uniquely connected to a game that you were ever a part of. No, that that was definitely as, as strange as it comes. Uh, yeah, Wilton Guerrero was the shortstop name, and I guess Olivo was not happy with Guerrero arriving so late to the bag at, at second base. And I remember the trainer apparently found the bitten off piece of ear, and I think they went to uh, uh, IHC Hospital and uh, after the game and uh, reattached that portion of the ear back to to Wilton's uh, uh, ear base. So it was, yeah, that that, that was, uh, that has to rank up there definitely as the, one of the strangest things. Obviously on kids' day, and fortunately, the, you know, it was in the dugout right. and all that, so the kids didn't uh, really know what happened either. But that day, of course, is about preventing violence. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. <laughs> preventing violence and, you know, no fighting and, yeah, you know, things like that. And, exactly. uh, and that's exactly what would happen on on a day like that. Well, Steve, this this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for uh, taking a few minutes. I tried to go as long as I could there so because I know you you have to get up onto the roof, man. You've, you've got like a honey-do list going on. Uh, you know, what, what are you fixing the rain gutter today? Is that what you're doing? Uh, just, uh, just cleaning them up on the roof. Of course, uh, let me squeeze in if I can. One more story from Please that do. standpoint. It just reminded me that, uh, uh, back in 1996 uh, or 1995, I was fortunate enough to, to win the, uh, uh, Utah sportscaster of the year. So in 96, they let me go to uh, Salisbury, North Carolina, to uh, enjoy the banquet and, and get my award. And uh, after the banquet, I get into the shuttle van to go back to the hotel. And the only other person that uh, ends up in the van after me is uh, the late great Dick Enberg, mm-hmm. who again a guy that I uh, admired because of ability to do multiple sports. And uh, so he asked me what I did, and uh, I told him, and he says, "Oh, well, who's your manager?" And I said, well, "Phil Ruth." It's this big smile on his face. He says when uh, he and Don Drysdale were doing the Angels games, uh, they were in Milwaukee and uh, went up to Phil and says, hey, you, Phil, you must be really popular here because uh, uh, and, and he goes, they can't even boo you here. And Phil goes, what do you mean they can't boo me here? He says, right here on top of the dugout, please refrain from getting on roof. <laughs> and when I got back to Salt Lake, I started to tell Phil the story, and he interrupted me and finished it verbatim. So it was that was a, a classic. <laughs> I love that stuff, man. Well, you know what's crazy is if you and I really got into all the stories, we could probably go for a good four or five hours on all the, the amazing moments. I mean, you work at a ballpark. I try to tell people, you work at a ballpark, you connect with people differently. You have moments that happen over the course of 144, or even if you're just working the home game, 70, 72, whatever it is, that just they stick with you forever because working at a ballpark, is it's different. Um, other places are called offices, arenas, what, whatever it is. There's a reason why it's called a clubhouse in the game of baseball. And I don't just feel like it exists that way for what happens there with the team, but also with the staff and everybody else working around the organization. And to me, there's nothing like that clubhouse feel with so many good people at the yard. Exactly. It's a, it's a wonderful atmosphere. Obviously, each sport has its... Uh, 
uh, idiosyncrasies that make each sport so so great. But for baseball, I think that's really uh, that's really the case. Uh, it's it's uh, you know it, it, it's a chance to reconnect with family while you're sitting there watching the games and all that, and uh, or reconnecting with friends. It's just a a great place to be, and it just saddens me that in uh, 2020. Uh, there won't be any minor league games, and fans won't be allowed at big league games. Yeah, no, it's it's without baseball in a summer the way we know it. Um, yeah, it's certainly not the same to say the least. Well, Steve, it was it was a pleasure to have you on with me here today. I I love that we get to have this kind of conversation after all the years of of working together. I hope we can do this again, and can't thank you enough. Uh, for taking some time, but more than anything, thanks for your friendship. Uh, it's it's really been awesome having you as a part of my life, as a part of my career, and you know, I it's been a bizarre last three or four months to say the least um, with what's happened in sports and entertainment. But I'm hoping uh, that we can cross paths the way that we're accustomed to uh, when all of this is over. Uh, we'll see. We'll see you April eighth of twenty twenty one, if not sooner, and. Uh... Again, uh, my pleasure to be on your uh, podcast and uh, willing to do it any time and uh, appreciate your friendship as well. All right, my man. The time is up. We'll uh, we'll see you out there on the roof, right? <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Well, I think that we've gone long enough. I might not be able to because I'm supposed to go to my uh, uh, go to Lisa's place at uh, be at Lisa's place at eleven thirty. There we go. We, <laughs> we scheduled this just right, my man. Scheduled perfect. Just... <laughs> perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Tell Sue I said hello. Thanks again, man. I will. Thanks. Say hi to Matt. That's Steve Klauke, voice of the Salt Lake Bees and the voice of summer uh, in the great state of Utah. Huge thanks to him uh, for joining us here today. As always, uh, if you like this podcast, hey, give it five stars. Please do. Take all the help that any of us can get with uh, the podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed some of the in-depth conversation and details and information about everything that is Steve Klauke. You heard him during the Bees games, right? Every single game you go to, you hear him on the concourse or whether you were in the car listening to him. Uh, He has been the voice of the AAA uh, uh, team here in Salt Lake City for so many years, and it was a pleasure to have him on uh, here today. He's a great friend of mine, um, and he's a great friend to anybody. Uh, Down-to-earth guy, character-based, and you love everything about having the chance to work and get to know uh, the legend that is Steve Klauke. Uh, it's, it's been certainly a blessing to have him here uh, on the podcast. As always, uh, you can be a part of the show. Make sure you email me, TonyParks801 at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet at me or connect with me on all uh, facets of social media at TonyParks801. Thanks again for listening. And as always, you can hear us right here on the Utah Podcast Network. I'm